Welcome to Health or Consequences, Commonwealth Magazine's podcast devoted to Massachusetts healthcare and public health policy issues. I'm Paul Hatta, Senior Fellow of the Loud Institute, here with my co-host, John McDonough, from the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. And we're delighted today to welcome back, as you'll, as you'll hear in a moment, to Massachusetts, uh, Sarah Isselin, who's now been in her role as CEO of uh, Blue Cross of Massachusetts since January of this year. Let me tell you, for our podcast audience's benefit, a little bit of, about Sarah's background before uh, we jump into it. Uh, immediately before coming, returning to Massachusetts, Sarah was the EVP and COO of Blue Shield of California, sort of a, a, health, a Blue Cross plan, not all that different than ours in Massachusetts. Prior to that, she was the EVP for government programs at Florida Blues, a mutual insurance company. And when she first left our state to go to take out these important positions back in 2014, she went to Optum as the president of Optum Federal Programs. I think that was uh, based in Minnesota. But Sarah, as I've noted, uh, comes from a long history of working in Massachusetts, including senior positions at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts uh, at the plan before she came, but she also was the president of the Blue Cross Blue Shield Foundation and also had opportunity to work in government, both briefly for the Patrick administration as an advisor, but also as the head of the Division of Healthcare Finance and Policy, in some ways to think about it as a predecessor government agency to what now we think of as the Center for Health Information and Analysis. Sarah, that's a lot to say about you and background. We so look forward to this conversation, but welcome. Thank you. I am so delighted to be here. And John, I think, is going to get us started. Uh, so John, go right ahead, please. So Sarah, welcome back to Massachusetts, and welcome to our podcast. We're really pleased and honored to have you with us today. So you've spent a lot of time in state government in Massachusetts, but then over the past nearly a decade, you were working in the for-profit environment in Minnesota. You worked in Florida, in California. What did you learn from those experiences that you take back now to your role leading the major health insurer in Massachusetts, Blue Cross Massachusetts? Um, thank you. Well, it's just, it's in my honor uh, to be joining you today. And I'd say the first thing that I learned uh, by leaving is that there really is no place like Massachusetts, especially when it comes to healthcare. Um, there really is no place like home. This is just an extraordinary community uh, that is so deeply committed to the health of everyone in this um, state. And you see the benefits of that everywhere you look. Um, you see it in the talent uh, and the just incredible companies that are based here. Um, and I don't need to tell either of you because you were on the front lines of this, um, but it also means we've been able to come together to take on some of the most challenging um, issues in health uh, in healthcare. Um, we came together, John, you and Paul both played huge roles in this uh, to get coverage reform done in 2006. And we still, all these years later, have the highest coverage rate in the country. Um, and we did it again in the years that followed as we as a community really focused on to sustain that incredible accomplishment on coverage, we had to talk about affordability and healthcare costs. And so, you know, starting back in 2009 and the laws that uh, were passed uh, following that, we've made a lot of progress on payment reform and cost containment. And we have some of the highest rates of value-based care in the country. Believe it or not, in some of those other states, 
when I first got there, I was blown away by the uh, the fact that there were a lot of people still paying percent of charges. Mm -hmm. And now we're all working together to um, add incentives in those value-based agreements to eliminate health inequities, which is another um, first in the nation of achievement. So, and then I, at this moment in time, I really believe that we're gonna do it again. We are entering what I think is a uniquely challenging period um, on costs, uh, and they're really driven by underlying issues with our workforce and inflation um, pressures. But I have a lot of confidence and optimism that that spirit uh, that we all bring to the table to work together in Massachusetts is going to serve us well as we tackle this next challenge. Well, Sarah, let me um, sort of build on John's question, not only for you thinking about your time away, what is it that you notice having returned now to lead the largest health insurance plan in Massachusetts? Anything different here uh, that you're experiencing now as compared to when you were uh, here uh, from 2014 and before? So I think what's most notable, mo noticeable, kind of picking up on what I said before, is actually what hasn't changed. So that same commitment to coverage and affordable, accessible care, that same commitment to working together to solve, you know, challenging problems. Um, I have just been blown away, frankly, coming back. There are not a, a lot of new leaders in this state, um, both inside of healthcare, but also in government. Um, it's really energizing to get to meet them and just see, uh, you know, how many extraordinary leaders we attract. It just feels so good to be home. And then I think there are a lot of things that have changed both in Massachusetts and nationally uh, in the wake of COVID um, that I'm noticing people's willingness uh, to get care virtually, um, a really concerning and dramatic increase in mental health care needs. I mean, we're seeing this in everybody. Um, but especially in young people, I'm a mom of three young adults, and the statistics are, you know, just shocking. I'm sure you know that in February, the CDC released yet another um, study reporting that one in three teenage girls had seriously thought about suicide. I mean, it's 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 pretty pretty terrifying. Uh, and when it comes to clinicians in this environment, uh, you know, we're facing what I think are really intertwined um, challenges. They're related to each other of uh, shortages of physicians and nurses and burnout. Um, pretty disturbing survey as I'm getting up to speed uh, from the Mass Medical Society showing that more than half of doctors in the state have symptoms of burnout, uh, which is probably about why we're looking at the same proportion, cutting back their clinical hours. So the affordability and cost pressures, they've always been here. We've always been a high cost um, healthcare state. When I was here before, it was sort of one of our favorite arguments about just how much higher cost were we. But that is really starting to feel different to me. I think we're moving into a period um, of growing tension between what our employers and families can afford. Um, on the one hand, I mean, that's real. And the cost pressures uh, and challenges that are facing our providers on the other, and it's our role as a health plan to help strike the right balance. Um, but I do think this is a, a particularly and more challenging moment in time that we're heading into. Sarah, let me, let me build on that. And, and, and you've noted, you know, the challenge to uh, a lot of entities, private businesses, insurers, providers. But we also have a role of government in all of this, and our Massachusetts Health Policy Commission. Uh, like you, worried about growing healthcare costs and affordability, has been asking for more authority. Is that something that you think that they need? And uh, beyond that, what's in addition the responsibility of health plans to contribute to affordability? Yeah. 
Well, let me start by just acknowledging how profound a struggle healthcare costs are. Um, they are a struggle for families in our state, for businesses in our state, and frankly, it's a challenge uh, for the overall competitiveness of our state. So people are stretched. Um, that agency you referred to a minute ago, the Center for Health Information and Analysis, found last summer that 41% of residents of our state said they had problems paying for care, and those numbers were even higher um, for Black and Hispanic families. Um, and notably, when I left the state uh, you know, in late 2013, only 15% of people in Massachusetts were enrolled in high-deductible plans. And in 2021, that's at over 40%. It's at 43%. And so we know these kinds of cost uh, barriers can create issues for people getting the care um, they need. And it's having a huge impact on small businesses. I, you know, over the weekend, I'm sure you all read the Globe uh, opinion piece that came out highlighting stories from struggling small business owners. Um, and we should all be concerned about that because it's getting harder and harder for them to be able to afford to offer coverage. And large businesses face similar pressures. So the punchline on your question about our role, well, making healthcare more affordable has to be our highest priority. It is job one. Um, and that's important uh, for us as a business, but it's important really for the role that we play in this community because employers have choices about where to base their businesses. And now more than ever, as we are in an increasingly hybrid um, environment, and healthcare costs are absolutely part of what they think about. So my hope, as you hear, I have a lot of optimism, is that if we come together as a community, like we've done so many times before, that we will really be able to meaningfully moderate the rising cost of care for families, for employers, and for the broader community. And I love um, quoting Governor Healy. She said it so effectively that the future viability, this was in her inaugural address of the Massachusetts story, um, it depends on it. And if we want to continue to compete as a state, we have to nail this. And what should be the HPC's role, given that yeah. you have a creation of that agency now about 10 years old in our state? So one of the things I've had the great privilege in my career, as you went through, of working in the private sector and working in government. And so I come at this just very clear eyed that with the challenge, with that backdrop of the challenges, we need government in this, too. Um, government is a powerful partner now and can be an even more powerful partner moving forward. So long ago in the state, we recognized and had a public conversation about the fact that there are limits to what the private market can do on its own. It's what led to the creation of the Health Policy Commission in the first place. So I, I do think that we are, because of these challenges at a moment in time, when we do need to take a step back and assess the tools that we have as a community, and so I do believe um, that we need to give the Health uh, Policy Commission more authority. And there are two specific things that we've shared that we think would make a real difference. Um, one of them is holding organizations accountable for meeting the cost benchmark. I mean, really um, holding them accountable. And then the second is uh, there's a lot of analysis that goes into measuring whether people are uh, meeting that cost benchmark, making sure that we've got all of the data that really allows us to measure spending against the uh, benchmark holistically. And that's especially important um, at the health system level. And we're holding ourselves accountable. I and mean, we are subject as a health plans to the most stringent regulations in the country on our medical loss ratio. That's the portion of premiums that we spend on medical care. And if we miss the mark, uh, we are accountable to refund our customers back. And so we just are asking for the same level of transparency, and accountability 
should apply to everybody in the system. Um, so that's that. Those are our thoughts. So the punchline on your question is yes. So um, taking a little uh, dip into the national scene and then bringing in here to the state scene, one of the ways that people have had some relief from cost pressures for the past about 12 years now is that uh, uh, people can obtain clinical preventive services, uh, all kinds of things around uh, screenings and so forth because of the Affordable Care Act with no cost sharing, no deductibles, no co-pays. Uh, there was a court suit out of California that has been uh, approved at the district court level. It's going to the appeals and then probably the Supreme Court that would throw out that provision and then make people subject to cost sharing to getting things like uh, mammograms and colonoscopies and other kinds of things like that. Uh, the Mass House put into their version of the budget language that would require health plans to continue to pay for those services without cost sharing in Massachusetts if the court suit goes the wrong way. Do you have an opinion on that or a reaction to that? Um, so my opinion is that these protecting access to preventive services without cost sharing is a good thing. Um, we as a plan are fully in support of it. It's another great example. It's another reason why it's such a thrill to get to be a part of this community um, where our mission-driven uh, 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 participants are all coming together uh, to protect our patients and members. And I saw yesterday, it looks like the Senate has adopted the exact same amendment. Um, so all... All indications are this should become law in Massachusetts in July, um, so we will protect uh, access uh, to those preventive services, regardless of what happens uh, at the federal level, at the national level. Um, and so they're just, it's another just beautiful example of the way this community comes together, um, just like we came together, um, huge and tremendous leadership by the Healy, Healy Driscoll administration when the abortion medication uh, mifepristone was in jeopardy. So, and I'm, uh, you know, frankly disappointed, but I imagine this won't be the last time um, that we're going to have to do this uh, to protect um, access to needed services in our state. Sierra, I want to ask you a little bit about the world of health insurance more broadly. And you're, as I reviewed earlier, your background is almost as good a person as any, um, given your experience not only here in Massachusetts, but working in, in companies or, or around the country. And as you know, uh, there's been a movement where there's been particular growth of some of the larger ones, often for-profit, publicly traded ones, even like United and Elevans used to be called Anthem and CVS Aetna. Humana, Cigna, and then the large nonprofit uh, system of insurance and providers, Kaiser. So when you think about where insurance is going and the fact that even some of these companies are vertically integrating, like in, in our own state, uh, United Optum both sells insurance a bit, but also owns physician groups. Give me your overall sense about both what's happening with sort of the growth of these large for-profit entities and their ownership of various parts of the healthcare system. Uh, your thoughts about all of that? Um, so what you're, and I would note, I think some of those nationals are very different from Kaiser, but your point is well taken, um, especially as Kaiser is expanding outside of the regions that they've been in historically. The growing presence of these national plans in our market, because they are starting to show up uh, more in our market, is absolutely something that we all need to watch. Um, and in my mind, there are really, I'd start with probably three reasons why. Um, and the first is 
the nationals can functionally kind of get around a lot of our state level healthcare regulation. And that's both because they're doing business, as you point out, they're national all over the country. And that makes it very hard to isolate the performance of their business here in this state. Um, and it's also tricky to do because they're largely offering self-insured plans. And as you know, self-insured plans aren't subject to state laws. That's a federal law that makes states unable to regulate um, in that self-funded space. So that means that they are largely not subject to the same benefit mandates, um, which can make our coverage really comprehensive um, and also contributes to costs. So that's kind of reason one. Reason two that you were getting at is because they do a lot of other things, they're in a lot of other lines of business, they are able to use their profits um, from other states or from those other lines of business. There's been a lot of attention um, by the media recently on their highly profitable, each of them owns a highly profitable pharmacy benefit manager. They can invest profits from other states or from those other businesses in service of growing in any market that they choose that they really want to kind of focus in on. And I, I don't want to say that they're, you know, predatory pricing. I don't kind of want to go that far. Um, but I do think it's reasonable to really be asking ourselves, you know, is the way they price in any given market reflective of their underlying costs in that market? And so that's something we just have to be mindful of and watch. Um, and then the third, I'd say, you know, what we've I've been talking about in response to some of the things that you've really thoughtfully asked, the collaborative problem solving that we do um, when we get into, you know, we want to take on hard problems or we get have hard issues that we need to tackle. They just aren't at the table in the same way as the local players, um, because, again, they're doing business all over the country. They're not as focused locally. So when our policymakers, this is one of the things on our minds, are thinking about addressing healthcare costs and preserving coverage, um, we really need to work to make sure that they're looking at the bigger picture, um, which includes some of those dynamics like the shift to self-insured and the increasing presence of these out-of-state nationals, um, which are largely, I would note, um, uh, for profit. So... So one of the manifestations of the changing environment with the large national players is a part of the Medicare program nationally called Medicare Advantage, where people enroll to get their Medicare benefits through private health insurance plans like Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, we've passed a threshold this year in 2023, where for the first time in the 68-year history of the program, Medicare Advantage, people in private plans now have more people than people in what's called traditional Medicare Part A and Part B. And the big national players, the five that Paul mentioned, uh, are consuming a larger and larger share of the national market. I think they're now up to more than 75 to 80%, just those five national players. Is this explosion in Medicare Advantage, do you think, a good thing? Is it worrisome in any way? And are there some things that we should pay attention to both nationally and in Massachusetts? Uh, so I, people choose Medicare Advantage because it offers them meaningful value. And you know, when the program was set up and this has just expanded since then, it is allowed, uh, plans are allowed to provide benefits that aren't covered by traditional Medicare. So those include benefits like dental and vision and hearing aid coverage. 
as well as newer benefits like grocery delivery or transportation, um, companionship, uh, and allowances for over-the-counter health products. And so these are all things that are really attracting seniors um, to the program. And so that part of it, that flexibility and that responsiveness to the needs of consumers, I think that's a good thing. And I will note that in Massachusetts, the kind of penetration rate of Medicare Advantage is lower. It's at more like a third um, uh, in this state. And that's largely because for a long time, there was a, a lot of purchasing of Medicare supplemental products. Um, the Medicare Advantage market had a lot of HMO plans and people wanted to have choice of providers. So I think it's going to start growing faster, um, given that most of our members right now are choosing plans that give them a lot more flexibility, so-called PPO plans in terms of um, choosing a provider. But as you uh, were alluding to, or as you asked, in line with everything else we've talked about, um, there are reasons to be concerned um, as well. There are some players in the market and the Justice Department has honed in on the national health plans on this issue. Some of those plans have been more focused on making money by manipulating, these are the Justice Department's words, not mine, but how they code uh, the healthcare status of their members. So they've really been focused on capturing you know, any uh, condition they might have um, and have focused on that rather than focusing on managing the care and the cost of the care their members need. And I do think that that's a problem. Um, so we know there's been a lot of media attention about the fact that this spring, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services that runs the Medicare Advantage program updated a set of rules that was an explicit attempt um, to stop payers from getting higher payments by making their members look sicker. This is what I was alluding to. It's a practice that's called upcoding. Um, and so to make Medicare Advantage, and I think that's right. I think we should be I'm really focused on making sure that everybody's playing by the same rules and and administering the program in the way that was it was intended. And to make the program sustainable in the long term, it really has to be about getting better value um, for members. It just, it can't be about a coding game. So consistent with the answer I gave you, is it related to the role of government in the state? I think, again, it takes strong, smart, and committed oversight at the federal level. And it's, again, it's striking the right balance um, between bringing some of the innovation um, of the private market, but balanced um, with the really important and critical role that government plays, especially given that the federal government alone finances the Medicare program. That's, uh, that's great to hear from you, Sarah. Thanks. So uh, uh, related and slightly different questions. Since you've been away, a lot of national attention, not so much in Massachusetts, but all around the country with the invasion into the healthcare system at all levels of something called private equity financing. Uh, investment firms that are buying up physician practices, dentists, hospices, hospitals, uh, just about every crevice of the healthcare system, uh, the private equity waters are soaking in and, and, and doing some practices of raising costs, lowering services, and taking money and just leaving very quickly in like five to seven years. Have you noticed, have you encountered private equity in the healthcare system? And do you think there are reasons to be concerned about it and any perspectives on Massachusetts as well? Yeah, well, and I know you wrote a piece on this, John, I read um, as I was getting ready to come back into Massachusetts. So I'm looking forward to spending more time talking about this. I would say here, our North Star is really being focused on making our healthcare system work better and supporting uh, people, our members, residents of the Commonwealth, navigating an extraordinarily confusing system 
in the most vulnerable moments of their lives, um, the moments when they most need help and guidance. So our focus is making the best solutions and providers available to our members. That's really our priority. We spend um, a little bit less time on how they're financed, but the trend that you're observing is one that we're watching and we're really thoughtful and intentional about the companies um, that we partner with. So Sarah, for a lot of our listeners, you know, they know Blue Cross because when they uh, take their commercial insurance card out of their pocket, your name appears there more so than, than any other uh, uh, insurance entity for re residents in, in our state. Um, but tell us something about what they might not know, in, uh, you know, about the company or its culture. Uh, and you've had, you know, opportunities over the years to uh, learn a lot about it. And now you've, you've returned. Yeah. What, what do you want to share about that? Um. Well, I could go on and on about this forever. Um. But I will just, you know, share. I wish that everyone could read letters and emails and sometimes phone calls uh, that I get pretty regularly from members um, or their caregivers and even a couple of times since I've been back, CEOs uh, of some of our employer customers reaching out because they had experienced moments um, that felt so profound, that moved them um, so much that they were compelled to share a story. These are moments when one of our nurses or a customer service representative um, showed up to support them um, when it mattered most uh, with kindness and care and support. So one of the things I just continue to be blown away by every day is uh, just there's such good people working here, uh, people who are committed to health equity, um, to access and to supporting people in the most vulnerable moments and scary moments of their lives um, and people who are passionate about changing our health system for the better. So I just feel extraordinarily proud to work shoulder to shoulder um, with just these incredible souls. So Sarah, final question, we're almost done. And uh, this, is a, this is a question that might generate whatever headlines come out of this interview, <laughs> but uh, lots of people in Massachusetts, Paul and I very much so um, embrace the historic not-for-profit culture of healthcare in Massachusetts. And we know with all of the pressures from all around the country, and you said it yourself, you see the uh, entry into the state of a larger for-profit footprint from some of the nationals. Is there any risk, should people be worried that at some point Blue Cross Blue Shield under your leadership might feel the need to change their status from not-for-profit to for-profit? Not on my watch. Uh, so part of what makes healthcare, and you just said it, in Massachusetts so great is how many mission-driven, locally focused, largely not-for-profit organizations there are here. And we are committed to remaining not-for-profit. We are committed to this community, to the role we play in it. Um, it's important to me personally. And I'd note you know, that I just talked about our employees. It's important uh, to them. And our mission is part of what powers our ability to recruit and retain top talent. And we know this is even more so, there's so much data coming out about this, whether it relates to millennials and what they're looking for in a job, whether it relates to people's pursuit of meaning um, in the wake of COVID, um, people want more than just a paycheck. Um, they wanna work in a place where they can experience a sense of belonging and meaning and purpose. And people work here. They work for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts because they believe in what we do. 
And that's why I work here too. And our that mission-driven orientation and our nonprofit status is all a part of it. So Sarah, I think I think Paul and I will probably be quoting you from, <laughs> from that comment. Um, so be my guest. Yep, absolutely. So on behalf of Paul, Commonwealth Magazine, Mass Inc., thank you so much for sharing your time, your thoughts, your insights. Welcome back to Massachusetts. And I'll say on behalf of Paul, we're both really happy that you're back in town. Thank you very much. I am thrilled to be back. I can't wait to spend more time with both of you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sarah.